Dijon means hello there and welcome to Josie and the Podcasts, a six-part limited podcast series all about the 2001 cult classic Josie and the Pussycats, hosted by me, best-selling author, journalist, and screenwriter Maria Lewis. And produced by me, film critic, podcaster, Blake Howard, behind shows like One Eat Minute, All the President's Minutes, Increment Vice, and very shortly, Miami Nice and Zodiac Chronicle. Now, our first episode was called History and all about the pop cultural significance of Josie and the Pussycats as Archie comic spin-off characters, from an unexpected World War II romance to the civil rights movement in America in the 60s. We also did our first bonus episode, How Archie Broke the Comics Code, and another bonus episode all about the fashion of Josie and the Pussycats, the film. It's jerkin'. But also, it's important to touch on these things because we're trying to go chronologically here. To talk about the 2001 film, we need to first look at how we got there. So if you've missed them, highly recommend hitting timeout, going back and listening to those. Flick us a rating and review while you're there. Fuck it, subscribe, get loose, and then return to us. We put out full episodes every Sunday and the bonus apps come out on a Wednesday. So there's heaps of content there for you. Last week on our episode development, we looked at the lawsuits that kicked up once the Josie and the Pussycats movie was announced and how 20-something filmmakers Deborah Kaplan and Harry Elfont found themselves in the mix to make the film after their debut hit Can't Hardly Wait. So to refresh, Deb and Harry get locked in as writers and directors. After originally entertaining the idea of a Josie and the Pussycats movie in outer space. In space. In space. Just like the second version of the animated Hanna-Barbera cartoon, they come up with an idea for something else. Something satirical, something witty, something current. Here's Harry and Deb explaining it in their own words. I think the first idea was, oh, wouldn't it be funny if we say that all the music that seems so kind of bland and generic and again at the same time we liked a lot of that music but it seemed comparatively very bland and generic it was boy band era heavy heavy yeah everybody's loving that because they're being brainwashed to love it and then I think everything grew from there then we realized okay why are they brainwashing people well what are they after and then we thought well what if they're selling things and then the whole kind of satire of consumerism and all of pop culture and capitalism <laughs> came from that. We showed it to a couple producers that we had relationships with that we kind of really respected and they sort of, uh, you know, maybe you listen at the time, maybe you don't, but the common thread was why? I don't, I don't get it. Why are you doing this? And to us, like, it seemed very clear. Like, I guess, again, having sort of come out of college during grunge and suddenly seeing everything get sort of sanitized and like people in matching outfits, it felt weird. It felt like something nefarious was going on, even if it wasn't. You know, it felt like we were being fed something we didn't want and people were like, I don't want it. Now this version gets greenlit and they rarely write with anyone in mind, but they immediately know they want Rachel Lee Cook for Josie. She'd auditioned for Jennifer Love Hewitt's role in Can't Hardly Wait when she was a teenager and now at 20, she was perfect. An offer went out, she accepted. Melody's role went to Tara Reid, who the studio Universal was super keen on post-American Pie. And legends like Aaliyah, Lisa Left Eye Lopez, Regina King and Beyonce all auditioned for the role of Valerie before it went to Rosario Dawson after an audition in a New York hotel room blew them away. Now it was time to assemble their crew. Assemble your crew. I'll be outside. With the crew assembled, the next step was band camp. 
And no, not the Disney movie version. This was Sans Jonas Brothers. That is two episodes in a row with Jonas Brothers jokes. Stop. I'm sorry, <laughs> but I can't help it if they're great to mine for comedic content. I don't want to write these jokes, but I just can't stop. Now, if you know another, just side podcast side note, if you know another musical act that has a movie called Band, in brackets, <laughs> fucking camp, that works better for that joke, you let me know. Okay. <clears throat> for Josie and the Pussycats to be believable on screen, they needed to be believable in real life. So Rachel, Tara, and Rosario had to learn to play their instruments, get to know each other, figure out their chemistry, and work out what their stage presence was as a band. Here's Rachel. We all ran in very different circles, and so we just felt like as soon as we became comfortable with each other that we had this, you know, whole world that we needed to talk about and understand each other as well as we could, and we were able to really you know, dive deep with each other in a very short amount of time. It was very sort of summer camp type experience. And I think we all thought we would be uh, very closely in touch for a long time, but we sort of went back to our own circles. And um, that I will love those girls till the day I die, but I don't see them very often. What year was that? Uh, I, I think you were 30. You tell me what year it was. 2000, I was 30. I know, because I was exactly 20. Because I turned 20 while shooting that while shooting our movie, and Tara took us all to dinner across the street, and 20's legal drinking age in Vancouver, and we got, we got pretty loose. <laughs> Rachel, Tara, and Rosario were all famous in their own right, but they did all come from very different backgrounds. Tara had kind of exploded after a string of hits, The Big Lebowski, Urban Legend, Cruel Intentions, and American Pie, with those last two both coming out in 1999. Rachel, as mentioned in the previous episode, had been working for ages. She had starred in her first movie, The Babysitter's Club, back in 1995, and she'd been backing up projects one after the other. She's all that, the hairy bird, antitrust. She had a lot of experience and a lot of work. Rosario Dawson, now she was more of an unknown entity. She'd been in a few films, but it was after Spike Lee's He Got Game and King of the Jungle that she became one to watch. Here's Rachel talking about it at the time during production. Rosario is one of those people who the buzz is really on about right now. Everyone wants to either meet her or work with her or tell me how great she is, and they're all right. In summary, all the Pussycats are excellent. Tara, Rachel, Rosario, they're all incredibly talented. They all bring something different, but they don't know each other. They haven't worked together, and they're not the full package yet. They're not Josie and the Pussycats yet. They're not the charismatic, well-oiled machine we'll see in the movie that are so obviously superstars that in a scene from the flick, all it takes is a blank CD case to see it. Here's Rosario breaking down that moment in an interview from 2000 on the set. It's the most genius scene. There's a sign that goes by and says, number one bands in the world. There's a bus that shoots off and there's smoke billowing behind us. We're all in, in the street with our, with our equipment, with our instruments, and out of breath, he picks up a CD case, we fill it perfectly, we look, we zoom in, it's beautiful, and that's how this movie starts, and that's how you get introduced to these really crazy characters. To get to that point where we all see what Ellen Cummings' character of Wyatt sees, what the audience sees, 
what Deb and Harry saw, the Pussycats had to head to band camp. And one time at band camp, here's Rachel, Harry and Deb. Deb and Harry and probably mostly the studio were all justifiably concerned about my stage <laughs> presence. <laughs> and so they hired this band, Powder, who I saw a video of before we knew we were gonna be working with them. And I remember the lead singer lighting a hula hoop on fire and swinging it over her head and thinking, what kind of movie is this? Are they gonna want me to and do that? And she had a bra made of tap lights. Yes, she did. What? Remember she wore a bra with like those, remember those, oh, those, those big yeah. globe lights that you could tap and they would go on? Uh-huh. Over her clearly enhanced, already enhanced. Chest. Yes. It was a lot of look. Um, it was. So we worked with them for a while and I think then, um, so I don't know that it was, you know, I, I don't, I don't know that, uh, I don't know how much of that I brought to a performance other than a <laughs> general degree of concern that I was not going to be able to do. And that bra you have made of tablets. <laughs> which, which I still, still have. have. Hello. So but my then, emergency yeah, kit. But then Kay came in, came in, Kay Hanley, who I feel like you guys were friends with even before the movie, no? Mm-mm. No? We met her through Dave Gibbs. Friends of friends. Of course. Boston Connection. Right. So then Kay came in and she performed the songs in the rehearsal studio. Because we'd all been learning to actually play any instruments, so we weren't fakers. Um, I remember that Sean Penn had just played that guitarist, and he didn't, apparently wasn't really playing properly, playing a jazz guitarist, and that had just come out. And people were really dragging him over the pools, so I think Deb and Harry were sort of hyper aware that we needed to really do this right. And, um, not hyper aware, appropriately concerned. Well, it's funny you say <laughs> that because I remember we were working with Kenny mm-hmm. writing the songs, Babyface, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I said to him, Wow, Sean Penn did a really good job in that movie picking the guitar. And he looked at me and was like, Are you kidding? Yeah. It was terrible. Apparently it was, I was like, oh, geez, I guess we ought to go do a better job than that. Now, this is a little bit of a podcasting footnote, but our aim was for Jersey and the Podcats to be chronological, which is why we started our very first episode on history and why we'll end the series on legacy. We wanted to take you, the listener, through the pop cultural journey from beginning to end. We have a whole episode dedicated to the soundtrack of Jersey and the Pussycats. It's that good. And that's coming up after this one. But the soundtrack and production overlap. There's things in this episode that touch on the soundtrack, but are also crucial to the production. So when we bring up that stuff now, don't worry, we're going to be looking at it in more depth in the very next episode and talking to Letters to Cleo's Kay Hanley as well. Oh, she's the best. She's the best. In case you don't know who that is, let me give you a quick primer. As Deb mentioned from that Boston connection, Kay Hanley is from Boston. 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 She grew up next to Mark Wahlberg and his 82 brothers before finding success as the singer, songwriter, frontwoman of Letters to Cleo, which were one of those staple indie bands of the 90s. Their cover of I Want You to Want Me is probably what most people recognize now, except not in my version that is terribly sung, as they appeared playing it in 10 Things I Hate About You. And another track they covered, Cruel to Be Kind, was also on that soundtrack. comes on board as the singing voice of Josie, Rachel's character, and she's part of this Insano in the Braino musical creative team that we'll dive into more in the episode on the soundtrack. They'd tried a few different voices for Josie and none of them had fit in Harry and Deb's mind quite the same way Kay did. Here's Rachel talking about it. 
I knew Letters to Cleo. I thought it was fantastic. But the sort of preamble to that happening is that they, everyone asked the question, can Rachel sing Thank you, before this happened? <laughs> Thank you. And I, like, a lot of people was like, well, I don't know. Because I think if anyone, you know, is sung in their car in the shower, you're like, maybe I'm okay. Maybe they can work some magic. So I went into the studio with Dev and Harry, did my best version of, I'm pretty sure, like, a Blink-182 song or something uh -huh. I had no business singing. Yep. It was terrible. But I remember everyone being very generally positive with me. And Kenny being like, and before I sang, he said, you can carry a tune, you're singing in this movie. And I'm like, I'm going to be singing in the movie. <laughs> I am not singing in the movie. <laughs> so, whoops. It's really for the best, though. But I remember what came back was like, look, this is about a band that becomes the biggest band in the world. So you did a fine job, but not that this, it was not your day. <laughs> <laughs> it also really, wasn't really easy to find best. her voice. A lot of people came in and sang for us too to find that mm. voice. It wasn't like, oh, just find the next person who can sing slightly better. Like it was not. There was something about the match, the match of the voice to the picture. We had, we had had somebody record all of the songs, I think, and it didn't work. We no kind way. of looked at you, and yeah, there was, and even Kay's voice. Like her letters to Cleo voice is a little different. Um, we kind of wore her, we, we had this little rasp when she was singing for you, singing for Josie, that just worked better. That's cool. And I remember you just you take after take, and it was once she kind of was a little worn out. Um, that's when it worked. That rasp wasn't imagined. Kay had just had a baby with her partner and fellow Letters to Cleo band member, Michael Eisenstein, and she knew her voice sounded different. She could hear it in the sound booth when she was recording those songs, and it ended up being perfect for what they needed. Here's Kay speaking about the band camp experience in her own words. They had hired this band, this local L.A. band, to teach Rosario, Tara, and Rachel how to look like authentically in a rock band, and there was this band called Powder, and they were like crazy over-the-top, like sunset strip metal heads with like all these fucking acrobatics and I mean they were amazing but like not at all what you would think of as what Josie and the Pussycats would be doing you know this like very reluctant rock star situation and so they were like well maybe can you like go over to the sound stage and and just like meet the girls and see see what's going on over there and Rachel and I met and we just started like going, we like were in this sort of like ballet studio with like this wall of mirrors and, and like just got two mic stands and started going through the music and like singing the songs and like, what would it look like if she was really being like, what would that, what would that authentically look like? Like blending a combination of like acting, but authentic singer rocker person josie and the podcast will be back after this brief intermission to hear from our sponsors is glittery geeky handmade jewelry your thing then you need to be all over a damn key like answer to picnic from star wars to harry potter whatever your nerd calling you'll be able to find something that takes your fancy in their range of limited edition jewelry Necklaces, earrings, brooches, you can check out the complete Adenki collection at www.adenki.com.au or on Instagram at Adenki Studio. That's E-D-E-N-K-I Studio. The link is in our show notes. 
I'm honoured by this genuine tribute to the film. The passion and enthusiasm that Blake and his guests, artists, cinephiles, film historians showed to Heat is extraordinary, and their appreciation of it, humbling. That is Michael Mann talking about the podcast on this very thread, One Heat Minute. Every single minute of Michael Mann's 1995 crime opus Heat examined rigorously and scrutinised one minute at a time. An amazing cachet of guests, Bilga Ibiri, Matt Solazites, Manola Dargis multiple times, Nick James, Dante Spinotti, Michael Mann himself. You must simply get on there. There are 180 episodes. That's right, even more episodes than minutes, and you guys can follow along. And if you have enjoyed this show, I'm sure you will like it and any other part of the One Heat Minute Productions family. The year was 2000. Y2K had been and gone, Aaliyah's Try Again was the number one song on the charts and Sam Mendes' American Beauty was about to win the Oscar for Best Picture at the Academy Awards. Yeah, this isn't that, (laughs) I mean, (laughs) from all the things in the year 2000, that not aged well. Meanwhile, Josie and the Pussycats' sound and their dynamic as a band is something that's still getting figured out in L.A., while elsewhere, the physical production was headed across the border to Canada to get those sweet, sweet location and production offsets, baby. baby. <laughs> so Deb and Harry are off to Vancouver to scout locations. Entire movie was shot in Vancouver to the point where we weren't allowed to shoot anything anywhere else. And I had to go, I had to fly back up to Vancouver for like a couple of days to shoot you know, if you know, there's an insert shot of a close-up of a CD going into a tray when Wyatt gives the guy in the record store. Yeah. We shot that months later, and I, we couldn't shoot in LA. I was like, really? It's a close-up of a That's second dude in my house. They said, nope, everything's got to be shot in Vancouver. So I had to fly uh-huh. to Vancouver to shoot an insert of a CD going into a tray. Right. The other thing is, I definitely want to clear this up, because every time I hear anybody talk about this movie, they said the budget was $40 million, mm-hmm. which it definitely was not. Oh, no. It was no. under 30 for sure. With all um, the music and everything. Yeah, uh, because every day was a struggle. It was try- to try to create a kind of uh, alternate, somewhat alternate version of reality to heighten the satire it was so hard. Our poor production designer, I think, I think was in tears multiple times. She's an artist, you know, through and through, and I think to the compromises she had to make, and like, you know, it's hard. We tend to, we, we tend to gravitate toward those people. And they don't play well with production. That production designer was Jasna Stefanovic, who had worked mainly in genre films right up until Sofia Coppola's The Virgin Suicides in 1999. Josie and the Pussycats' specific early noughts aesthetic, the pinks, the metallics, the glitter, so much glitter, the animal print, that comes down to her. Art directors Richard Cook and Kelvin Hummony, and costume designer Lisa Evans, who we talked about in more depth on the bonus episode, All About Fashion. Deb and Harry, as a duo, because of the way they work and the way they are, collect these crazily specific and inventive creatives, like the team we just mentioned. They're like magnets for these people, but in the case of Josie and the Pussycats, that was tough too. They didn't go over time or over budget, but the physical shoot itself wasn't without its challenges. Here's Harry and Rachel. We always make our days. We never go over, but it did feel like it wasn't easy. I don't know, my memory of it is not like, oh, it was smooth. Like, can't hardly it was super easy. Just on that, I mean, 
every day was a party and it was pretty straightforward. It was very contained because this was a little more sprawling and we were trying bite. to, yeah, it was, it was more ambitious. It wasn't as easy. It wasn't like, I mean, you guys were super easy. Thank you. But um, the we production of it. Blast. I think I remember you guys being like, we need to stop laughing. We're like, we're shooting for real right now. We've got to go. But, um, you know, we're just having such a great time. You guys never seemed especially, I only remember one day and I know you guys remember which day that you seem stressed. The other big thing was finalizing the rest of their cast. As mentioned in our development app, the DuJour boys all came across from Can't Hardly Wait. A whole bonus episode is about them this week, and the rest of the crew gets packed out by Gabrielle Mann as Josie's love interest, L&M, Paolo Costanzo, and Missy Pyle as the Cabots, Alexander and Alexandra. But the big two for fans of The Kitsch and The Cult are Parker Posey as Fiona and Alan Cumming as Wyatt. This is my curly room. No boys allowed. Come on, girls, sit down, we'll gossip. Both of them are legendary in their own right for various kooky characters that have gone on to have cult followings, and Josie and the Pussycats is no exception, as they're both playing eccentric, maniacal villains with secret gooey centers. It's hard to imagine the movie without Parker or Alan, and it's probably not that surprising to learn they came as a package deal. Here's Deb and Harry explaining. We've been really, like, thinking about it, like, really blessed with the people we get to work with. Like, consistently, we're able to assemble really interesting, fun casts. Like, I'm just even the show we're doing now, which Rich just did a part for us on. Like, I just feel like we always get really lucky with that. But Alan was like, that was a, that was a big deal. Alan and Parker. He really got... Well, they were kind of came as a team. I don't know that Parker would have done it without Alan. Mm. I don't know that Alan necessarily... I mean, Alan probably would have. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I think once Alan was in, it became much easier for Parker to kind of figure out how to do this. I think she had a hard time getting her head around, what is this movie? It was so different than anything else she had done. And, you know, there'd be days when she would be not thrilled with... It just because it wasn't the kind of stuff she was used to doing. She's like, "What am I doing? What are you doing she here?" Felt and then like she, a little bit like she was selling out. Yeah, she hadn't done like a big studio movie for a payday before, and I think there was probably a lot of fear of like, "What's my audience gonna think?" Like that I did some kids' cartoon movie and it's silly and. But then when Alan was there, she kind of was more rooted and had it easier. She was like, oh, this is so much fun. Isn't this fun? Yeah, she had a lot of fun with it. It was the scenes without Alan that she struggled with a little bit just to, to make sure that she found that tone. Meanwhile, she's so, so good. So good. Like, there's nobody else who can do what she does. She's amazing. This it's just I wish she hadn't given herself kind of a hard time over it. It's just, uh, it's just so, so good. Some of the most heated scenes in Josie and the Pussycats happened between Rachel and Parker, and the two of them had been in a very black comedy from the director of Mean Girls, Mark Waters, just a few years earlier. Here's Rachel and Harry talking about that. I had met Parker on her movie House of Yes in 1997, playing a younger version of her. So that was, I think, also sort of a weird full circle moment. Um, and she, like, after working with her and familiarizing myself with her career, I spun off and tried to do as many indies as I could. And then we both meet back in the studio world land. Kind of cool. And she was very protective over you as well. Aww. I remember she, she, there was something we did. That, I don't even remember what it was. There was some direction. And she came out after that, but that was not cool. 
Do you remember this? No. Yeah. I don't remember that. Yeah. I was like, oh, jeez. If you're listening to this podcast, I guess the assumption is that you not only know what Josie and the Pussycats as an entity is, but you've likely seen it and loved the movie. But just in case... Here's the bare bones of the plot. The film opens with boy band du jour about to board a private plane as they wave and sing to their screaming fans. Now, once on board, they raise an issue with their manager, Wyatt, Alan Cumming, about hearing a subliminal message on one of their tracks when they accidentally play it backwards. Wyatt says he'll find out what's going on before he and the pilot jump out of the plane with parachutes and du jour presumably plummet to their deaths. Hard cut to Riverdale, where Josie and the Pussycats are playing a dead-end gig in a dead-end bowling alley in the hopes of making it in the music industry. They look different from everyone else. Unique. Individual. Themselves. This is what eventually catches Wyatt's eye, as he's on the lookout for a new band who can continue to put out the music that has secret, subliminal messages in it that convinces listeners to buy any number of products who are part of this mega-evil, mega-international conglomerate run by Fiona Parker Posey. Here's a breakdown of how it works in a nice little wink to the dinosaur DNA scene from Jurassic Park, except replace Richard Attenborough with Eugene Levy. Hello, I'm Eugene Levy, and yes... I'm an actor. No, I said cappuccino. I'm here to talk to you about something very important. No, it's not about me or my career. I'm here to talk about subliminal messages in rock and roll music, or as it's simply known in some cultures, rock music. You see, for years the government has been wisely coercing teenagers to buy products they normally wouldn't want just to get their money. Fact, kids don't have bills to pay. Fact, they don't pay taxes. But they do babysit and hold minimum wage jobs that earn them wads of cash as thick as, well, my body of work. But these kids today aren't dumb. They're not going to buy just anything. That's why the government has been planning small subliminal advertising suggestions in today's rock music. The results? We can now get these kids to buy just about anything. We can have them chasing a new trend every week. And that is good for the economy. And what's good for the economy is good for the country. So God bless the United States of America, the most ass-kicking country in the world. It's kind of genius, right? With drug overdoses, plane crashes, car crashes, you name it, all devices the corporation use when the rock stars cotton on to what's happening. Josie, Melody and Valerie get signed and Josie and the Pussycats as a band have a rapid ascent. Something that's questioned by the girls but not examined until it's too late. Wait! Does anyone else think it's a little strange that all this happened in a week? Wyatt and Fiona work to start turning the girls against each other, ostracizing them from the thing that has helped them become so unique and so special as a musical act, their friendship. Riverdale Mini Bus Pass. Guys, you know what? We have the only bus passes in Muni history with three people in the picture. It's not my fault you both jumped in on mine. Okay, no, you both jumped in on mine. <laughs> you know what, though? We should keep these. Remind us where we came from. Hey, listen. Let's promise each other something right here and right now, okay? No matter what happens, if we become huge stars or if we end up hitchhiking back to Riverdale, we will always be friends first. 
and a band second. Friends first. Friends first. I swear on my bus pass. Ultimately, they cotton on to what's happening and turn the plan on its head, exposing the evil scheme and risking their own careers to see if the audience will actually like their music without the subliminal messages. Which, of course they do, because the music, it fucking rocks. That's the really tight version of the story. And there's obviously B and C plots amongst all that, like a belated high school romance, trying to fit in. But for me, who saw this movie as a tween, one of the biggest hooks was the girl power. And yeah, okay, I know that's a catchy phrase and a catchy hook in the late 90s and early 2000s, but that shit meant something to 12-year-old me, and it means something to me now, especially in movies like Josie and the Pussycats and Blue Crush and Charlie's Angels, which all came out around the same time. They showed us three women of mixed ethnicities from lower socioeconomic backgrounds working together towards a shared dream and striving to make it in a male-dominated industry. Josie and the Pussycats felt like it gave a voice to me and my friends like me, including Amanda, who's responsible for our theme song and who you'll hear more from in an upcoming episode. Josie also gave a voice to Rachel. Here she is explaining that. I definitely have felt, you know, talked over and unheard, you know, in a lot of ways throughout my career, but I'm also a soft-spoken Midwestern person. And that's, you know, I, I take ownership of that as well. Mm. I don't know. It's, it's a tough business for literally everybody, wherever you're coming from. So I don't want to believe I'm unique in that regard. There's something else I'd like to say here. Uh, so in episode two, Development, I told you all about how we met up with Deb, Harry and Rachel at a Jewish diner in Studio City. So we chat for quite a while. We talk about the movie, the genesis of the project, the music, everything. And when we wrap and prepare to go our separate ways, we go to get the bill. And Rachel, who had to dash off earlier for an audition, she's paid for it. She paid for everyone's bill and then she dipped without saying anything. It's the goddamn nicest thing. And I'll die knowing that I owe Rachel Lee Cook lunch. She's all that and your lunch bill. She, not just mine. <laughs> Not just mine, <laughs> Harry, Deb. I wish you If I had to pick one of my favorite elements of Juicy and the Pussycats, and there are legit so many, to be honest, the character of Wyatt and Ellen Cummings' portrayal of him is right the hell up there. He wasn't the cult queer icon that he is now, but in the 90s, Ellen was on one hell of a run as he started to break into Hollywood from the UK industry and gems like The High Life. He'd popped up in the best of the Pierce Brosnan Bonds, Goldeneye. Bodies! Then in Emma as Mr. Elton, which is excellent casting. Oh, where's your Emma impression now, Blake? <laughs> Not as familiar Silence. with Mr. Elton Silence. as I am with Bodice. Silence for the work of Jane Austen. Uh, Spice World, Eyes Wide Shut, Spy Kids, and of course, Romy and Michelle's High School Reunion. I think part of what makes Ellen Cumming so great, not just as Wyatt, but as all these characters, is that he's a serious actor with 
serious chops seriously playing these unserious characters. When we land, I will call the choreographer and she will give you a new face. Oh, too bad your mama couldn't give you a good face. Take that back right now! I'm sorry, Travis. Thank you. You can have a new face too. He's a classically trained theatre actor and he brings his thespian bona fides to roles that he seems largely overqualified for, but that's part of the reason why he's so damn good as Wyatt. The fact that he obviously really enjoyed making the movie with Parker, Deb, Harry, Rosario and everyone else really comes through as well. Here's Alan talking about his time on Josie with GQ. Josie and the Pussycats. I like that film. Very, another sort of uh, example of a film that, that when it came out, it, they didn't know what to do with it. It was a weird film. It was, all, it was like a parody of itself, you know? And so they aimed it at sort of tweens, and it didn't really, it, it didn't work. It didn't really go anywhere. And it's one of these films that over the years, people have come back to it, and it's got a sort of a culty following. And uh, I really like it. I mean, for me, what was so great was that I basically kill a boy band within the first few minutes of it, which, you know, was, that's pretty good. And uh, I got to work with Parker Posey, and we'd actually just, we made two films back to back. That was the second one. And uh, that was really good. And I remember when, and actually Rosario Dawson, who's in it, I'm about to go and work with her for the first time since, so like 20 years later, working together again. Yeah, it was just really fun, a really fun uh, kind of mad, and it's sort of ahead of its time, I think, in the way that it parodied a lot of uh, product placement and marketing and things. I remember when Parker left. This is like 20 years ago, so I was only, you know, in my early 30s. And when Par Parker left, she rapped early. I was the oldest person in the cast. <laughs> and you just don't expect that to be this, the case when you're in your early 30s. You know what I mean? Expect it to be like maybe now. But because uh, everyone was so young, they were, the three girls were like, you know, 10. But, oh, darlings. On the next episode of Josie and the Podcasts, we're talking one of the most enduring elements of the movie the soundtrack. From Kay Hanley herself to songwriters and backup singers, we look at how you go about making the best debut album for a band that never existed. And in the meantime, to tide you over until next week, a bonus episode is coming out this Wednesday. And du jour means, well, it's all about du jour. Du jour means the bonus episode is all about du jour. Be sure to subscribe to this show so you're the first to know all the upcoming episodes and some bonus episodes as well. If you like this, it would be jerkin' if you'd chuck us a rating and review to help other people find it as well. This episode of Josie and the Podcats was researched, written, and presented by me, Maria Lewis. And produced by me, Blake Howard. Our podcast artwork was done by the very talented Amy Reid, who you can find on Instagram at, at ai.me.me.
or via email at amy.read0310 at gmail.com. And our Jerkin theme is courtesy of Amanda Wilkinson of Bossy Love and Edwin Organ. And Bossy Love's brand new album, Me Plus You, is out now. And if you know someone who's hearing impaired and would enjoy the show, written versions of every episode, including the bonus episodes and this episode, are available online. The link is in our show notes. Until next time, who's a rock star? Josie in the podcast.